My name is Daniel. I get the privilege of teaching God's Word today. If you have a physical copy of God's Word, meet me in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, feel free to use the table of contents, uh, or you can open up your Northridge app. That's the best way to take notes. I'll meet you there just in a second. Uh, we just finished up a four-week series on heaven, and then you just saw that promo vi- video about heaven invades. We're doing this you know, clever prequel movie series thing with where we're, where we're headed as Jesus followers. We just finished that up. And then what has happened around this Christmas season, what we celebrate every year with heaven coming, Jesus, the Savior of the world coming to us. And so today, in this in-between, the gap week, if you will, uh, I, I felt like the be- best usage of this week is to do some uh, ligaments between these two series. And today, I want to talk about heaven invades. Because today, in the traditional church calendar, kicks off a series called Advent. And if you grew up in a more traditional setting uh, of uh, faith, you may be super familiar with what Advent is. It's a Latin word that simply means coming. Uh, and it's to announce the arrival of someone notable. Uh, some nobility, um, and we celebrate in the Christian tradition about Jesus, the, the one, the Savior, the Messiah who came to us in this Advent season. It stretches four Sundays, starting the Sunday after Thanksgiving, uh, leading up until Christmas. Uh, and you may be super familiar with what this season is, uh, or you may, like, this is the first time I've heard that word of Advent. And so simply, it's the celebration of remembering the waiting that the followers of Jesus had to do before he showed up on uh, this earth. And if you're a uh, parent of a kids men kid from preschool through elementary, you're going to get a uh, Advent Devo uh, to go home, uh, one for the parent, one for the kids, um, uh, to do in this season, 25-day devotional. If you're watching online, you can grab that at northridgekids.org at the parent blog today at the digital version of that. But it's a celebration of this waiting period. And we just celebrated waiting, like waiting too long for a turkey to come out, right? We celebrate, if you grew up in a family like mine, you couldn't eat until everything was ready. Like you couldn't pick, like that was a no-no, you get your hand slapped. Uh, And I still live in one of those houses. My wife's like, nope, it's not all done yet. You can't have anything. And so you wait. And then now, since this waiting's over, you enjoyed your Thanksgiving dinner. Now you have to wait until Christmas. There's all these waiting times and periods in uh, the Christmas and holiday season in general. Also around the waiting, it's a celebration of beauty of life. You know, maybe during the holidays, you're reminded, similar to me, of the the beauty that exists in life. Like you enjoyed a beautiful Thanksgiving dinner with friends and family. Maybe the food was good. Maybe the turkey was dry, but that didn't matter because the conversation was flowing at your table. Or maybe for you, uh, it wasn't a reminder of the beauty of life. That Thanksgiving uh, was a reminder of the brokenness because there are people that weren't around your table. Maybe you spent Thanksgiving all alone for a various number of reasons. I know for this Thanksgiving for my family, it was both the reminder of beauty and of brokenness because we had people that weren't able to come to Thanksgiving because they got COVID, they were sick. And it was a reminder of both these tensions that we live in of the beautiness, the beautifulness of life, the beauty and the brokenness. Um, And maybe for you, you experience the same. But you as a follower of Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you know that he came to restore brokenness, to right all the wrongs. So why is there wrong that still exists? It's because we're in what theologians call the second advent, the second period of waiting, waiting for heaven to fully come. The place we spent the past four weeks talking about, we're waiting for that to happen. So the question that I want to ask you is, what do you do 
while you wait? Like while you wait, how do you live your life? I know for me, I'm terrible at waiting. I'm a great waiter because you ask my wife, she's pregnant right now and I'm a great getting her coffee, like fixing her meals. Like I'm a great waiter. Like I could do well in the food service industry, but I'm terrible at being patient, at being a waiter in the midst of that. And I thought like, what a better litmus test than to tell you about five or six ways I'm awful at being patient. And maybe you could judge yourself in this as well. Like when you drive, do you constantly change lanes to get ahead of the person that was in front of you, even though they're also driving the speed limit? Uh, Cause I know I do, right? Like they're driving the speed limit. They're actually not slowing me down, but I just feel the need, like there's an open lane, you know, let's pass. Like, and so, cause I'm terrible at waiting. Or maybe this is you, like when you're getting ready to go out of the house, like I know for me, I'm usually the first one that's ready in our family. So I got my shoes on, my jacket's on, and I'm ready to go. And my wife will look at me and say, stop rushing me. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't say anything. She's like, you didn't have to. Like your, your jacket's on, your shoes are on, you are rushing me. And I'm like, oh, my bad. Or we'll go on family walks, and I'm 6'2", so I naturally just speed up the pace of our, our family. And it's like, and my wife will be like, it's not a race. We're walking together, and our one-year-old is like right behind me, like, daddy. Like, and, uh, and so I just naturally just speed us up. Or, or my favorite uh, place that I'm not patient at all is when you go grocery shopping or go to uh, Wegmans or Walmart or Target, wherever you may get uh, food and thanks for your family. Like I'm like above the line looking at which cash register has the smallest line or who's working the hardest. Like I'm trying to judge their work ethic and I'm like, okay, who's really serious about getting me checked out? And we'll pick a line and, and, and we'll be sitting there or there'll be these time periods that I'm like, man, I made the wrong decision because that, that lady over there, she is working way hard. Let's, can we change lines? And my, my lovely wife will grab my arm and she'll just say, just wait. I promise we'll get there. But yesterday I was in the grocery store and she wasn't with me and I actually did change lines and it was a good decision because I got out faster. But, uh, but yeah, I'm bad at waiting. And, and the question always brings up in this is what do we do while we wait? Because the wise words of my wife, just wait, I promise we'll get there, is rang out all through the prophets as they deliver these promises to the people of God in the midst of of their waiting. And we read them every Christmas, like the prophet Isaiah, where you maybe be at in, um, in your Bible or in your, in your notes right now. Uh, in Isaiah 7, 14, we read this almost every Christmas season. It says this, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And he, you, and man, words are hard sometimes. And we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And then a few chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All throughout Isaiah, we have these little promises snuck in just right there, just these glimpses of hope in the midst of what the people of God are going through at that time. Because if you read the book of Isaiah, it's a pretty large book, but if you just start in chapter one, verse one, and start working through, you'll be pretty burdened because the people of God are actually being told that God is going to come near to them, not in comfort, but in discipline. That they have not done what God has asked them to do. They have not been faithful to their end of the promises to live to the standard that God has called them to live. And so in the midst of that, God says, I'm coming near to you to discipline you, to lay you low. 
Or the analogy that's used in chapter 10 of Isaiah is to make you like a stump in the forest, that they're going to be chopped down like a tree in the forest. And the way that this is going to happen is God is actually going to raise up the nation of Assyria and the king of Assyria, this military power to lay all the nations low that are rebelling or running from God. Which leads me to this question almost is, what do you do when life is like a stump? Where it feels like you've been cut down. And maybe it's been cut down because you're in a season of rebelling or running from God. You know what God has called you to or what God is asking of you, but you're running and it feels like it's all going against you. And I'm not dictating that every time life is like this, it's always God disciplining you because sometimes life is like a stump because people are evil and sometimes they do wrong things. They do bad things and you're experiencing life feeling like a stump because of that. Or other times, life happens. Like life, the circumstances that surrounding it, it just feels like nothing can or will go your way or in your favor. So what do you do when that happens? Because it all happens to each and every one of us. Life happens to each and every one of us, and it feels like we've been cut down. I know for me, when that happens is I have a problem of always just trying to fix my problems, right? I'm the, I'm the best solution, even though a lot of the times I'm the one that got me into the problem. I'm always the best solution. Uh, and this, a small illustration of this happened when I was in college. When I was in college, I lived in this apartment with three other guys. There were four of us, all had our own rooms. We had this shared common space and um, one afternoon, I got in from playing basketball with some friends. One of my roommates was sitting on the couch, and he said, hey, man, you want to go get some dinner? Because it was getting close to dinner time. I was like, yeah, let me shower real quick, and then we'll go. And so I grabbed my shower supplies. I jump in the shower, get all cleaned up. I get out. I grab the bathroom door handle, and I pull, but it won't open. And, and so like, I'm just like, what? what is going on? So I shut the door, and I open the door. And it's not locked because the door's handle is going down. It's pulling a little bit, but it's only opening about maybe an inch, maybe two inches. And I'm very confused with this. So I'm shutting, opening, shutting, opening. I'm, like, I'm doing this back and forth, and it's not giving. It's always stopping at the same point. Like there's something on the other side of the door causing it to not fully open. And I'm thinking, oh, man, my roommate's, he's playing a joke on me. Like he's got a hold of the door on the other side. And and so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do this. And, but it, it's stopping at the exact same point every time. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's something else. So I peek around the crack of the door, and I notice on the door handle there is a rope tied to the door handle, strung down the end of the hallway, tied to another door handle. So talking about waiting, my roommate couldn't wait a whole three and a half minutes for me to shower before he had to devise a plan to, to prank me. But in my mind, I'm like, no, I refuse to give him the satisfaction of pulling a prank on me. I'm getting out of here on my own. There was no windows in the bathroom, uh, so I was in interior. So I had to get the rope off of the door handle somehow. So I, I get my fingers around and I'm working the rope, the knot off of the door handle. I get it all the way to the end, uh, but the knot's too large because the handle wraps back into the door. And so I can't push it all the way off. And I'm on my knees, I, I, several minutes have gone by at this point, and I'm sweating again. So I'm, I'm back in the same spot I was before I even took the shower and got clean. And, and he's like belly laughing. He thinks this is hilarious. Like, I got him. And he rises to his feet, probably because he was hungry and he's ready to go eat dinner. And he says, just let me help. And I, like a little toddler struggling to open a bag of snacks, I said, no, I can do it on my own. 
And man, it makes me take a step back and think, how many times have I been in that situation in my life before and done that very same thing? That there was a solution on the other side of the door because I was positioned in such a way not to be able to help myself. And God and his people through the prophet, he makes it very clear that God was going to put them in a scenario where they could not help themselves. He wasn't going to send them some strength. He wasn't going to send them resources so they could crawl their way back out. He wasn't going to send them seeds so they could plant more trees, if you want to use that imagery. Rather, Isaiah chapter 11, our third prophetic verse that talks about Jesus coming, he says this is what he is going to do. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Uh, The stump of Jesse is the uh, imagery of David's family. David is the epitome of the best king that Israel has ever had. And it was told uh, through the prophet Samuel that from his lineage, from his genealogy, the Messiah or the Savior would come. And so Isaiah echoes that very same thing. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We see these three pairs in Isaiah chapter 11, verses one and two, that he will have wisdom and understanding as the foundation for his life. That counsel and might will be the produce of how he governs and how he rules. And then knowledge and the fear of the Lord will, in verse nine says, fill the earth. That all of these things are going to equip this person it's, it's someone that God is sending to do everything he is commanded to do. Which what is he commanded to do? This person who is filled with the Spirit of the Lord, who's coming from the stump of Jesse, who is the branch, who is the shoot. It's Jesus. And what he's called to do is judge the earth and ultimately save it. To save the people who would cling to him. But here's the problem. In that very verse... We get these beautiful words from Isaiah. We heard it in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 11, that someone is coming. But think about this from the people of Israel's perspective. They waited another 700 to 800 years before Jesus actually came. And this person, this person who's supposed to come is directly opposite of the rulers of the world. Because Chapter 10, verse 13, we we see the words of the king of Assyria when he has been risen to power by God's own strength and might. He says this, by the strength of my hand, I have done this and by my wisdom, because I have understanding. Man, every time something good happens in my life, it feels like those are the words that come out of my, my, my mouth. Or if they don't, they're at least in my heart. In my pride, in my arrogance, I forget the the grace and the power of God, that he is the one that's working and moving even in my disobedience and my obedience. But we're told that we no longer have to trust in in these other powers or even within ourselves, that he is sending someone. But the people of God had to wait. And this wasn't something that was foreign to the people of God. If you think about this waiting period, 700 to 800 years, Israel was also in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Today, in this second advent, we're 2,000 plus years on the other side of Jesus' coming. People of God have had to wait. 
And you may wonder this question like, okay, Daniel, how do you know that the person that the Spirit of God was going to rest upon and be the Savior of the world is Jesus? In heaven's delay, how do you know that was Jesus? I'm glad you asked that question because in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus starts his ministry, he stands up in a church service. He's handed the scroll of Isaiah. He reads passages that say the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And then he sits down and says this, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But the people of God, nation of Israel, waiting on God to work, many had probably fell to the reality that God's never going to rescue us. God's never going to do these things. In fact, many, when Jesus was walking on the earth, missed him standing right in front of them. But the reality is, from this passage and in the character of God that we can learn is this. Jesus is working even when we can't feel it or see it. That there's hope. That Jesus is at work. And the primary evidence of Jesus being at work is seeing lives changed. Lives changed by the power of God. It's evidence of God's continued working. And we've experienced this here at Northridge. In the past several months and and weeks, we've experienced God at work. People coming to know Jesus and going public with their faith in him. That God is alive, that Jesus and his spirit is alive and he is working in our midst. It's evidence of him in this world. But the fact is that even in the midst of all this, you may be led to like, well, he's not working in my life. Uh, So what if he's working in so-and-so's life who gave their life to Jesus? That's incredible. Let's clap for them. Yay. But what about me? I I want more of Jesus. I want the evidence. I want all these things. And and that mindset is almost the exact mindset that Jesus came against at the end of Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, after he stands up and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled, he frustrated some people. He frustrated some people in the temple. He's like, how dare you think that you're the one that God has sent? Like, how crazy of a claim must that have been? And then they tried, they attempted to kill him, but they were unsuccessful. And then Jesus goes about, he heals people of, of sickness and diseases and even cast out some unclean spirits, Luke says in Luke chapter 4. And then when these people experience the power of God right there in their midst, they they go to Jesus. This group of people goes to Jesus and says, don't leave us. Don't, Don't leave. Stay with us. And then Jesus looks at them and says this. I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because this is why I was sent. He says, I was sent not just so a few could hear, but so that everyone would hear. Isaiah talks about a day in Isaiah chapter 11 that the entire earth would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And so Jesus says, this is why I've been sent. I've been sent so that people could experience life change. And when they did, when they met Jesus, when they encountered Jesus, everything changed. Have you encountered Jesus? Have you genuinely encountered Jesus? Not this sideline experience, but do you know him? Not know of him, about him, or have this sideline knowledge, but have you actually experienced Jesus? Because he talks about this day, Isaiah does. He says this, Isaiah eleven nine, 9, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
This word knowledge is about an experience. It's about an experience or an encounter that does something within you that changes you from the inside out and leads you to live your life differently. And that word Lord is the personal name of God, the Yahweh. So Isaiah essentially says that the earth one day will be filled with this encounter with God so prevalent and so immaculate that it will change everything. And he talks about that in other verses in this chapter. But notice that this change is something that Jesus offers to his people that encounter him throughout the Gospels. His invitation to them is, follow me. Follow me. And, And then their following him would lead them to an experience that they would experience his true presence and then cast everything aside and re-alter their priorities in their life. And in, the, in Scripture, you notice they encounter him, they go all in, and then what they learn begins to change as well. But the order that we love to have is, okay, tell me everything I need to know. Now I'll follow Jesus. But Jesus invites us and says, come, follow me. Follow me. And who is this Jesus? Well, Isaiah tells us in 11 verses 3 through 5, I want to encourage you to read those passages. It tells all about who he is, that his joy is to stand in the presence of a holy God. That if we would stand there, we would be blown to smithereens because in our brokenness, we could not stand there without Jesus standing in the gap. That he judges perfectly, always right, never misses. His word is always true. He's always faithful. He's always just. Bottom line, he is fully capable and equipped to do the task at hand, which is to be the one on the other side of the door. Positioned in such a way to help us, help the people of God who could not help themselves. And when we are extended the invitation to follow Jesus, we're also simultaneously sent by Jesus. Because all the followers in the New Testament, if you look, they're almost like called to follow and then they're sent on a mission. To be called by Jesus to follow him is also means you're simultaneously sent by him. The disciples encountered Jesus, fully altered their lives, and now they had a new priority. Even their time with Jesus wasn't necessarily for themselves. And and get this, we adapt this mindset as followers of Jesus in the 21st century that even us being with Jesus is just so that we can get some self-embetterment. Like we think like our culture thinks. Our culture thinks by you, for you. But That's not the mindset of Jesus, that we think that we even do spiritual disciplines just for us to be better. Like we read scripture, we pray, we come to church, we are in biblical community, and it it makes us better. It makes our lives better, and it does. But it's not necessarily the end is not you becoming better. The end, it's for others. Followers of Jesus should have this mindset instead. Followers of Jesus think like this, by his strength, for others, by his strength, for others. As Jesus was sent by God the Father, he almost simultaneously said, I am sending you. Because God wants to work not just in you, but through you. So the question that we have to ask in this waiting period, in this second advent, as we're waiting for heaven to come, is where are you being sent? Where are you being sent. To be a follower of Jesus means you're sent by him. You're sent to do what he said, proclaim the good news and heal the broken, to meet both physical and spiritual needs. 
Now, I may just feel like I'm leaving you at a loss. Okay, what do I do? Daniel, what do I do with this? I want to invite you simply today to start praying that question. God, where are you sending me? God, where are you sending me? What do you want me to do? Because all throughout the month of December in this next series of Heaven Invades, we're going to be talking about a ministry here at Northridge called Beyond, how we go beyond the walls of our church, beyond this room or room wherever you may be. We're going to talk about how we get involved to spread out the kingdom of God, to spread the good news of Jesus locally and globally. And we're going to share some ways that you can get involved with that ministry, whether that may be going and physically doing something, giving, or a, a bunch of different methods. But before you just say, okay, I'm going to do that so you can feel better. No, I want to invite you. Pray. Ask God, God, where are you sending me? Where do you want me to get involved? Because the reality is, is we're all called to do it. The question is just where is God burdening your heart? And I want to end with just sharing a few ways that our family, my family, gets involved in this. Not to self-promote or do any of those things. I just want to give you some practical examples. Every year, our family, uh, our young, small family right now, um, does what we call a family summit. Every January 1st, we get together, my wife and I, because uh, we have one son who's one and another one coming in a few days. Um, we, just the two of us right now, because they're really not uh, giving any opinions yet. We ask the question and we, we celebrate God's goodness over this past year. We talk about some pain points in the year of how God saw us through those things. But there's a section in our family summit where we ask questions of how do we want to give back to God this year? And Rena and I, when we got married, we made this commitment to each other and to God that we wanted to do our absolute best to do 1% more each year. 1%. And you may ask, what's that 1%? Well, that 1% is of our time, of our talents, and of our finances. We want to do 1% more than we did the following year, constantly recognizing that all of it, our time, our talents, and our finances are all God's. And He has blessed us with that, and we want to give it back to Him as an act of worship. And you may sit there and think, oh, 1%? 1% more? That's nothing. And I hope that's what you say. I hope that you walk away with this. I could do that. Like I could take that challenge. Or maybe it's more or maybe it's less for you. Whatever it is, consider how God would invite you to take a step of just a little more recognizing that he's the giver. He's the ultimate giver. Some other things that our family does is we try to serve every year outside of um, of just the church setting. We, we want to serve in our city. Another thing we do is we want to at least sponsor at minimum one compassion child for every one child that we have. It's just a few things that our family is saying, like this are, these are ways that we can give back to God and care for those, spreading the good news of the gospel, both meeting physical and spiritual needs. Because God has offered us this invitation to follow in the well-worn path of Jesus, to work while we wait to run to the mess. Heaven came after you and I, and the invitation is this. Would you run after those? Who Would you run after those who are far from me? As God draws near to us, would we draw near to others? To remind you of my wife's simple yet profound statement, just wait. I promise 
we'll get there. But to tag it with the words of Jesus is join him at work in the waiting. Because I promise God will fulfill every promise that he has made to come near to us. He will bring about heaven one day. But what will you do until it comes? As we close out and we get ready to respond uh, to today's message, I want to simply just read a prayer over you of Jesus' own prayer from John chapter 17 that he prayed in the hearing of his disciples on the night that he would be crucified and ultimately go and be with the Father. And would you join me in uh, pause and pray as we pray these words? Jesus said to his Father, Now I'm returning to you. I'm saying these things in the world's hearing so my people can experience my joy completed in them. I gave them your word. The godless world hated them because of it, because they didn't join the world's ways just as I didn't join the world's ways. I'm asking that you don't take them out of the world, but that you guard them from the evil one. They are no more defiled by the world than I am defiled by the world. Make them holy, consecrated with your truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sake, so they will be truth consecrated in their mission. Amen.